from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is in Black America. It was it was rough because you saw I saw the black community that really was a little bit below middle class. People didn't have a lot, but they worked and they were a family. I saw all of that tear apart. And then you then you got all of these people on drugs, and here I am with two kids by a married man at 15, can't get a job. So I started to do what I saw other people in my community do, which was sell drugs. So I started to sell crack to survive. It wasn't easy. I tell you, as a girl in, in the street the way I was, I don't even know what, how I'm still alive. I was shot twice in an abusive relationship. Sometimes I look back and like, I don't even know how I survived. I must be a cat. Patricia Miss Pat Williams, stand-up comedian, actress, and author of Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat, published by HarperCollins Publishers. Growing up in Atlanta, Georgia during the crack epidemic, Williams lived in a home with nine other people. There was a grandfather who owned the house, her mother and her boyfriend, her sister and three brothers, and her two uncles. Also, none of her relatives ever had real jobs. You could say Williams came from a family of self-employed entrepreneurs. Her grandfather ran a bootleg house out of his living room. One of her uncles robbed people, and her aunt sold her food stamps. By the time Williams was 15, she was a single mother with an eighth-grade education, with no money and no job skills, and two babies under the age of two. In 2004, she discovered her calling, making people laugh. I'm John L. Hansen, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat with Patricia Williams in Black America. Well, yeah, because he I was used to Derek taking care of me. He was paying my rent. You know, I was I was supposed to be in my head, I thought I was the main chick. You go out and do what you want to do, you know, you take care of me and the two kids I got by him. When he went to jail, I didn't have a Derek. I didn't have anybody to pay my rent, but I still had two kids. And I'm 16 years old that I had to take care of. So I just did. That's how I got into selling drugs. I did what I saw Derek did. And once once I started, and I remember making my first thousand dollars, I was like, oh, my God, I'm rich. I'm rich. And I actually thought I was rich. And I just said, I just kept going. And when he got out of jail, I no longer needed him. For a woman now living a suburban life in a small town outside of Indianapolis, Patricia Miss Pat Williams has come a long way from her days in the 1980s when she sold crack for a living. Mind you, the street life was all she knew back then. Her grandfather sold moonshine from a makeshift bar he had in his living room, and none of her relatives ever had a real job. She survived on ketchup sandwiches and slept on the floor. Williams and her sister, Sweetie, would dance with the drunks at her mother's direction, and would rob them once they went to sleep. For years, during her childhood, William experienced psychological and physical abuse, both from her mother's boyfriend and from the father of her first two children. In early 1997, Williams began to turn her life around. She earned a GED and a certificate to work as a medical assistant, but her past kept getting in the way. Soon after, a caseworker noticed William's untapped talent. She could make people laugh. Recently, In Black America caught up with Williams while she was back in Atlanta to attend a Falcons football game. Man, that's where it went down at the Looker House. <laughs> Everything was a go at the Looker House. 
there's plenty in the story about what went on at your liquor house, but what made your dad or your granddad go into that type of work? I don't know. My granddad, he was always had his own little business at his at his house. He's always sold cigarettes. I don't, you know, I was a kid, so this is all I know of my grandfather is uh, selling moonshine. He, he was the first entrepreneur that I met. And what what brought you to the point to actually write this book? Uh, they paid me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I always, when I started to tell my story of what I went through, people, I was like, oh, you, you got a book, you should write a book. And I would tell people, look, I, I'm married, I got kids. You know, I got a new set of crack babies. I don't have time to write no book. I dropped out of school in eighth grade. I got a GED. I'm too busy. And I, I just said, I said, Lord, if, if, it's, if it's a book here, send me somebody who can spell. And in popped this le- lovely lady named Janine. She came about, and she heard me on a podcast, and she was like, you have a story. And I just pulled it all out for her, and she, she helped me put it together, and that's how Rabbit became about. And we sold it to HarperCollins. Tell us about your mom. Um, my mom was a uh, when as young as I can remember. I my first my first memory we lived in the bootleg house with my granddaddy, and she used to drink and gamble and stuff like that. And she wasn't the best mom. I grew up later on in life really hating her, but then I realized she had us what she was handed. So mm-hmm. I had to learn to forgive her. Like a lot, of, like a, just a lot of stuff, overlooking stuff that you should never overlook with your kids. Like she didn't protect us like we were supposed to be protected. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up with a lot of that anger, you know, being mad at her for the things that I went through. And, you know, in Chapter 5, it tells you a story about what her boyfriend did. And that's a story I never told anybody. It took me 35 years to tell that story. You're talking about Mr. John? Yes. I never utter a word of that. And when I got ready to tell it, to put it in the book, I actually started shaking. And I called my sister and I was like, do you remember this? And she said, yeah. And I was like, I'm ready to talk about it. You mentioned in the book that you somewhat got over it, but your sister, Sweetie, was had a more difficult time getting past all that? Uh, yes. Uh, my sister, uh, you know, I turn, I think with me, I just put everything in a closet and say, mm-hmm. I can't dwell over stuff I don't have control over. I think with my sister, to deal with her pain, she turned to alcohol and drugs. And to this day, she's still doing the same thing. And when you go to talk to her about these things, all she want to do is cry now. So I know for a fact that's how she dealt with her pain. You know, the, the, the way my mama let me touch her and at a young age, like mm-hmm. as young as eight years old, everything that went on in the bootleg house with us, you know, everything that what Mr. John did to us and what so many other people did to us. I just think that's how she dealt with her pain was alcohol. I think a lot of my escape came from watching a lot of TV because when I watched Leave it to Beaver, it mm-hmm. took me out of that house for them 30 minutes or an hour. I understand that you all didn't eat that much until granddad actually took the chain off the refrigerator. You knew it was time to eat. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Granddaddy was old school. You, you know, these kids today, they'll just open your refrigerator and drink your soda. Not at Granddaddy's house. He had one of those chains on his refrigerator that you pull a truck with. You know, you pull a mm-hmm, car behind your mm-hmm, car. Mm-hmm. And he would wrap that thing around it to it couldn't fit no more and put two padlocks on it. So I don't care how thirsty you were. You wasn't getting in that refrigerator. You better lick that, that condensation coming out the side of that old yellow refrigerator. You was not getting in that refrigerator to Granddaddy say you get in the refrigerator. Now, also, when you were at Granddad's liquor house, when some of the drunks went to sleep, your mom had you picking their pockets. What were you thinking back then? That was my very first job. (laughs) (laughs) I hated it, but I also did it because it was my mama, and I was told to do it. But I was also praying that they would wake up, miss their money, and never come back. But it was something that I hated doing. And I, as a kid, I was as young as seven or eight. I can't really remember. But I would say stuff like, in my mind, why don't you do this? Because, you know, when drunk people wake up and catch you in their pocket, they'll hit you in the head. And I'm like, you could take a punch better than I could. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't understand, you know, why did she make me do stuff like that? And then I realized it was a hustle for her and me because she was giving me a dollar per wallet. And that was pretty good money for an eight-year-old. I know that's right. Life changed when when when, when your granddad shot Miss Betty. Tell us about that experience. <laughs> uh, we was in the house watching wrestling, I think, or either Walter Conkright, because those are the two things I watched with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And she came in and acted like a fool, and he told her to get out. And he pushed her out, and they used to call my granddaddy 38. He had like three or four nicknames. One of them was 38 because he carried two guns in each pocket. And he literally took those pistols out of his pocket and shot that lady with both pistols. Put the gun down and say, call the police, but pull the the moonshine out first. And I'm sitting there thinking like, he just shot this lady. I mean, the first thing to go was her finger. I'll never forget it. Mm. We see movies, Boys in the Hood, The Wire, New Jack City. But you actually lived through this crack epidemic. For those who aren't familiar with the real deal, tell us what was it actually like uh, living through that experience. Uh, I was in a, uh, it was it was rough because you saw I saw the black community that really was a little bit below middle class. People didn't have a lot, but they worked and they was a family. I saw all of that tear apart. And then you, then you got all of these people on drugs, and here I am with two kids by a married man at 15, can't get a job. So I started to do what I saw other people in my community do, which was sell drugs. So I started to sell crack to survive. It wasn't easy. I tell you, as a girl in, in the street the way I was, I don't even know what, how I'm still alive. I was shot twice in an abusive relationship. Sometimes I look back and like, I don't even know how I survived. I must be a cat. You talked about Butterfly, and later on in the book you said someone came around looking for their daughter that was totally different. She was a Spelman student, and now she was one of your testers. That type of experience, seeing someone that was vibrant and then seeing what crack had done to her. That that was really an eye-opening for me, to see this girl who had it all mm-hmm. and end up at such a nice school like Spelman, but across the street is the ghetto from Spelman. 
to get hooked on drugs and to see a mom that really came out there screaming and crying and kicking for her child to come up out of the street. And I remember looking at this lady so many times, chasing her crack, her daughter who's on crack, who's supposed to be in college, saying, dang, I wish I had a mom that cared that much. Mm-hmm. And this lady kept tears in her eyes, begging her, you know, child to come up out of the street. I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Henson Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Patricia Miss Pat Williams, stand-up comedian, actress, writer, and author of Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat. Miss Pat, what sprung you with Derek? I mean, you just couldn't get Derek out of your your life or your mind to, to save your life, so to speak. You know what? Derek is the first person in my life that really paid me any attention. Mm-hmm. And he said those magic mm-hmm. words. I mean, something I wasn't used to hearing. He said, I love you. I, I didn't I didn't grow up here, hearing somebody say, I love you. I grew up so, trying to survive thinking that I only cared about myself, even though I had a mom there and a stepdaddy there and a granddaddy there. It was always, I was always in a survival mode. With Derek, you know, he's, he made me feel like, he made me feel like I was worth being loved. Until eventually, until he got what he wanted. A much older man. I was 12 when I met this man, and he was 22. Right. But, I mean, he, he really he really made me think that he really loved me. And I fell hell over hell for him. I mean, here I am, a young girl. First time I really ever had a solid man figure in my life. Because Grenada went to jail, and his stepdaddy ran off and left. I mean, I was happy as a kid in the ice cream shop in the beginning. You talk about him picking you up and taking you to school. You're the only one in elementary school that had somebody with a car. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I used to say, "Why y'all boyfriends ain't got no car? Why they don't need bikes?" <laughs> I understand. I, I understand. Uh, your other three siblings, Sweetie had a problem, but your other two brothers, they were in and out of jail basically all your uh, childhood. Yeah, I had I had three brothers and a sister. Uh, okay. My brother was in and out of jail their whole childhood. Literally, I think they just stopped going to jail. My one of my brother got like fifteen years for stealing, and he stopped stealing about twenty years ago. But their whole childhood was in and out of juvenile in jail. It was a revolving door for them. Once you started slinging to uh, use one of the, the street vernaculars, when you look back at it. When Derek actually took you over Marky's house, what were you thinking? When Derek, Derek, oh, oh, his cousin. His um, cousin. When he first started, he came back and he had quit his job, and you know he was rolling at the time. But after that, you decided that you wanted to get some. Well, he had gone to jail, so you had to make a move for yourself. Well, yeah, because he, I was used to Derek taking care of me. He was paying my rent. You know, I was I was supposed to be in my head. I thought I was the main chick. You go out and do what you want to do. You know, you take care of me and the two kids I got by him. When he went to jail, I didn't have a Derek. I didn't have anybody to pay my rent. But I still had two kids, and I'm 16 years old that I had to take care of. So I just did. That's how I got into selling drugs. I did what I saw Derek did. And once once I started, and I remember making my first thousand dollars. I was like, Oh my God, I'm rich. I'm rich. And I actually thought I was rich. And I just said, I just kept going. And when he got out of jail, I no longer needed him. I found because it. Because I was making my own money and taking care of my own kids. 
I found this someone interesting. I I wanted to talk about this before I talk about Derek. You all were baptized so many times just to make ends meet or get a meal. Your mom was yeah. taking you, you know from what? church to church. That's what black. That's back when the black community really cared about you. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm from Atlanta, but if you was in need of anything, food of anything, the church would ask you just join the church, and we would you know help you with financial food or whatever. And my mama neighbor hipped her to it, and she just started taking us to different church. And honestly, I don't go to church. I do believe in God. I was on the phone with a girlfriend, and I just said, you know, I was baptized 25 times. And she's like, who the heck baptized you 25 times? And when she told me she was baptized once, I'm like, well, who baptized you once? That's when I realized it was a scheme. Tell us about Miss Troop at English Avenue Elementary. Uh, Miss Troop is a, was like a third or fourth grade teacher. And, uh, you know, I was a dirty kid with the nappy hair. You know, nobody cared how I went out the door. And she just, she took up time and she started to wash my clothes and she would brush my teeth and comb my hair. And, you know, she would always have something extra there for me to eat because you, you can look at me and kind of tell what was going on at my house. And she, she, I am 45, and I always give her credit for lighting that fire in my heart. She told me something that I'll never forget. She said, Patricia, you can do and be anything in this world you want to be. All you got to do is dream. Yeah, I understand. Once you decided to live that life, what were some of the adjustments that you had you had to make? Or did you make any adjustments from 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 what you were doing prior to holding down the the laundromat front? I had to, uh, it was hard. Because, you know, I grew up watching everybody hustling my whole life. I watched my brother them steal, my uncle steal, my granddaddy moonshine, my mama steal. So I turned into a drug dealer. So when I met my husband and I started, he was like, hey, people get jobs. I'm like, for what? My first job was at McDonald's. And I could not believe people was working for $6 or $7 an hour. It blew me away. I'm like, who the heck can live off this? Well, I'm used to making thousands of dollars a day. Tell us about Portia and Mercedes, your nemesis while you were in school. Well, those are the girls that picked on us. You know, we was dirty, our hair was nappy, and they, you know, they was they was well kept kids. So, you know, they picked on us all the time, not knowing what was going on at our house. But thanks to Miss Truth, you know, she would clean me up and, you know, brush my hair, and they kind of laid off on me, but they stayed on my sister. A lot. And, you know, that's why I can't stand to this day. I cannot stand to see kids in need. A dirty kid always reminds me of a rabbit, and it makes me so angry because I know how that kid really feels when they go to school and they, they're, they're not as well kept as other kids. It irks the crap out of me. I know it does. Speaking of rabbit, how did you come up with that nickname? Uh, my mama had a boyfriend by the name of Curtis. And he told me if I eat a lot of carrots, my eyes was going to turn blue. I was going to have pretty eyes. And so I just kept eating carrots, and nothing ever changed. They say if you don't know, you don't know. Tell us about when people were trying to school you, and particularly about, you know, you you, you made a lot of money, and then you bought this audacious ride that, you know, like you said, it said billboard, you know, drug dealer, that you needed to, you know, kind of, calm down and not be so flashy and then the kind of furniture you were purchasing with your money uh i would just i i just tell you i was the i was just the 
the typical drug dealer. I mean, you know, when you ain't used to nothing and you get a little money, you get crazy. It's almost like a basketball player. They <laughs> they blow that first check. <laughs> I wanted everything with glitz and glamour. I didn't have to eat, you know, ketchup sandwiches no more. I discovered Chick-fil-A and told black people, y'all are crazy to eat <laughs> I purchased a car when I was 16, didn't even even have a driver's license. I had a learner's license. And I used to ride around with crackheads in the car who had a valid license. So if I get pulled over by the police, they couldn't say, hey, you don't have a valid driver because you're underage. And I just, I had the nicest apartment, thousands. I probably paid $1,000 a month back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And nice furniture, everything a kid should have. I was 16 with this stuff. And I was taking care of my kids' father's sister kids. I'm glad you brought that up. You also, at one point, was taking care of your sister Sweetie's kids and your kids. Why did you take on that that tremendous uh, responsibility? I took my sister kids because they were, the, the, the defect worker was going to take them here in Atlanta. Right. And, again, when I see kids in a crisis like that, I, it always reminds me of rabbit. And I truly believe that every child deserves a solid foundation to start on. You can, we cannot punish kids for being born into a messed up situation. When I took those kids, I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Off the back, I had six kids and a new relationship. And I was I was willing to risk my relationship with my husband to to save these four family members. What was it like having to prepare your mother's funeral when you were what sixteen? It was um <laughs> I had never been to a funeral before, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make sure she went out really nice. So, and my mama used to love the young and the restless. Right. So I bought her a um. So I bought her a um, a negligee. I buried her in a negligee, and I had no clue that's what you bury dead people in. <laughs> and I remember the guy at the funeral home like, you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I sure do. And, boy, they, people showed up at that funeral, and they was like, why is your mama dressed like she about to go and stand on the corner? I think your brother Dre made that comment also, didn't he? <laughs> Yes, he's like, why you got mama looking like a hoe? <laughs> the first time you went out with your sister, you met Derek. The second time, I think you went out with Stephanie and you, you met your current husband. What was that experience like? It was kind of, you know, you call him nerdy, but he was really uh, there to, to have your back. My husband had just got out of the military. He was uh, 21. And uh, was not my type. You know, I'm, I was used <laughs> to them street guys. You know, I wasn't used to somebody respecting me and stuff like that. The most manable person. You know, and I don't tell this a lot on the interview. I thought something was wrong with him. I was like, is this dude gay? He's too nice. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you meet these guys in the street, and then the first thing they do is they want to jump you. I mean, nice and tuck me out and treated me. I mean, I was blown away. I said, this can't be real. So it's totally different dealing with the last one because the last one wanted to punch you in your eye every Friday. This dude just wanted to have a lovely conversation while rain dropped. When you were putting all these thoughts together, are there some parts that was really too painful you to want to put on paper? A lot of it they cut out, but yes. It took us two years to write this book, and I tell you, we cried so much, my face lost weight. (laughs) 
not the rest of me, just my cheeks trimmed down by probably about 30 pounds. What was it like that first day or that first night you got on stage and, and, and you was talking about your family and some of the things that you went through? You know what? The first night I went up and I did it and they started to laugh and I was like, uh, this is easy. All I got to do is tell my business. And I started researching comedians and stuff and see how much they make. I was like, Richard probably made this kind of money from telling his business. I tell my business every day on the phone to my girlfriend for free. <laughs> so what is it like living outside of Indianapolis now? White. <laughs> <laughs> you opened the book saying that, you know, once you all moved into the neighborhood, an angel lady brought you a cake, and you had to call Jeannie to to find out what was going on. Yeah, my other friend lives in a white neighborhood already, so I called her, and I was like, uh, this white woman bought me a cake. Uh, should I eat it? She was like, girl, eat that cake. She just don't want you to break in our house. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that was one of the best cakes I ever had. <laughs> I, I, kept, I kept knocking on the door. I'm still depressed. Can you bake me another cake? <laughs> I know that's right. I also understand you've been nominated for an NAACP Image Award in the category of Outstanding Literary Work Debut Author. How, how does that feel? I think I'm still riding that high. You know, this is a little book that would not stop. So I'm, I'm blown away. I didn't expect all of this from this book, all of this from me telling my story. You know, I, I'm glad I did my story because there's so many people coming forth saying how they've been violated in their life. And every woman that comes out, each and every day, I said, I know the feeling of holding that mess in. So I'm I'm really blown away about this book and, you know, what it's doing and how it's coming along. I think I, I, think I still need to be pinched. I understand. How you, how your children taking it? Uh, they're, they're, they're proud of me. You know, I tell people all the time, most of the time, kid, people try to, the kids try to make their parents proud. I've always worked my whole life trying to make my kids proud of me because especially my first set of kids, which I call my Medicaid set, they know where I came from. And they are so proud of me. And I've never really had anybody proud of me in my life. But my kids are my biggest cheerleaders. What do you want readers to come away with once they've read the book? I want people to never give up because you just never know. Tell your story. Don't don't hold it in. Let me learn how to laugh at the bull crap in your life. Because that's what healed me. When I became a comedian, each time I told these dark and crazy stories, I began to heal. I began to forgive people. I, my, you know, I began to, my heart became lighter. So, so how if you don't do anything. Hmm? Now go ahead and finish your statement. If you don't take, I tell people all the time, if you don't take nothing out of this book, learn how to laugh at the crap in your life. Because when you can laugh at the pain that you've been through, then you got control of that situation. I got, I finally got control of my life. Do you have a chance or have you had a chance to some to, to visit or hear about some of the people that you are on the block with, particularly um, Duck? I talk to Duck all the time. I found him when I was writing the book. He's doing fine. Good, good. When the movie coming out? I don't know. I hope. I'm. Hey, it's, my fingers are crossed. I think it'll be a good one. <laughs> when you look at back at your your life as it is now, what would you do differently if possible? Finish school. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not become a convicted felon. <laughs> 
uh, uh, probably a lot. I mean, I mean, my struggle. I, I want. I can't say I wouldn't want to change my struggle because I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I went through as a kid. Patricia Miss Pat Williams, stand-up comedian, actress, and author of Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.